Well, I've entitled this morning's message, The When, Why, How We Are Justified by His Grace. And you may recall that it was back in October of 1500, actually 1517, that Martin Luther pinned a 95 thesis, page thesis, upon the the doors of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany, declaring that the just shall live by faith. That justification in the eyes of God takes place by faith in Christ alone. He was addressing the question of indulgences and many other uh, things that had corrupted the church and was seeking to bring the common man and woman to a living faith in Christ simply because of Jesus' work on the cross. Fast forward to about 2006, an older group called the Maranatha Singers, one of which, whose name was Bill Bastone, wrote a song, Justified, in which the lyrics of that song go, Justified, just as if I had never done anything wrong. Justified, all my transgressions are gone. I was lost sinking in an ocean, going down empty and broken. I had run straight out of hope when you reached down. Guilty as sin, that's how you found me. Took me in just like a family. Paid in full the charges against me. Now I'm innocent before your throne. Justified, just as if I'd done nothing wrong. We come to this subject this morning and Paul's statement to Titus there in verse 7 when he reminds Titus of also the fact that the believer is justified by his grace. And so it may raise the question, are we justified by faith or justified by grace? Yes, both. For it is our faith in the efficient blood of Jesus Christ who he shed because of the grace of God that assures us eternity and salvation. It's interesting to me that coming to this last chapter of the book of Titus, we'll be here this morning and then next Sunday we'll finish it out. If you haven't read ahead, please do. Today we're tackling the first eight verses in which, in these eight verses, Paul gives four exhortations, three facts, and one invitation that we want to take a look at this morning. And so I call you back to verse one, in which Paul writes, he says, remind them to be subject to, to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So he's going to get to that point of the believers on the island of Crete, they're 
their position, the fact that they have been justified by his grace. But you recall, as we've been studying through the book, the society there on the island was a rough crowd. They were an unruly crowd. And what does it mean to be unruly except to not be willing to be ruled? To be unruly is to be unwilling to submit to the rule of authority. Paul, knowing what Titus is up against, in that he was to appoint elders in every city, he was to give to them, as we studied last week in chapter 2, very clear commands of how their lives were to be lived, the things that they were to be involved in and not involved in. And now he picks up where he left off and says, and also Titus, remind them that they are to be subject to rulers and authorities, that they are to obey so that they are ready for every good work. In the original language, the word remind is in what we call the present tense, which means to remind them now and keep on reminding them that they are to be subject to the rulers and authority. That comes uh, across at an interesting time in our uh, history right now. It comes across at an interesting time in our nation. It comes across at an interesting time on the heels of what we've just been through over the last couple of years with COVID. When the, the church in this particular state and others was challenged and uh, asked to completely shut down. And so if you were with us during that period of time, maybe you're watching at home, oftentimes the question came to um, church authority, are we to just submit to the law of the state or do we have a higher law, a biblical mandate to keep the doors of the church open? Did God tell us to close the doors? And if we make that decision to open the doors when authorities in the land are telling us to keep our doors closed, are we not submitted? Are we, in fact, being unruly and rebellious? Maybe you had that discussion in your homes. Maybe that was often a, a tenor or a tone of things that was to be addressed. As most of you here know, we came to a place where we chose to believe that we have a biblical mandate to not forsake the gathering together of ourselves. And so we found a way to seek to comply with um, basic CDC guidelines and keep our doors open so that we we could walk that road of endeavoring to be subject to authority. We're not, not under authority, but also acknowledging the fact that there is the highest authority in the lives of this living organism called the church, the body of Christ. So 
I think it's um, relevant, really, right now, that Christians be clear about a conviction that a conviction does not give way to arrogance and rebellion. In fact, Paul deals with that attitude as, as we go through these other three exhortations that our conviction does not give us license to be arrogant against the authority in which this land in which we live. So that's the, the first of the exhortations he gives in verse 1. And he's reminding them, reminding who? Everyone in the island of Crete, this unruly, rough crowd that had come to faith in Christ and were seeking to form these little pockets of believers that are called churches. And most often than not, their lives were used to being unruly not subject to authority. Well, what on earth would change that in somebody? Answer, Christ indwelling them. When they came to Christ, there was to be change in their life. And when a person is born again by the Spirit of God, there is to be change ongoing in their life. Are you still changing? Has Christ begun to change your life and are you still changing? If you haven't come to Christ yet, today he offers salvation. And be clear, we don't clean up our lives and then come to Christ. We come as we are and then he washes and cleanses us. but it equates to change. So that's the first exhortation. The second one comes to us in verse 2 when he goes on to tell Titus, to tell the believers in Crete that they're to speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, the third exhortation. The second one, speak evil of no one. Man, as I was reading through that this week, and it's like I had to just really put on my head and practice that. You know, let's, let's covet together today to go through the whole day and speak evil of no one. Oh, my goodness. But it's there, right? Is it a command to only the Christians on Crete, or is it an across-the-board exhortation to every Christian to speak evil of no one. That word evil actually is blaspheme. The same way in which we would never think to blaspheme God, right? Oh, no, dare say. So let's, let's covet together today. One day, can we do it? One day, not in our own strength, but maybe by the grace of God can speak evil of no one. Second exhortation. Third exhortation is that they are to be peaceable, gentle, 
showing all humility to all men. In other words, walking humbly before God and before man. Which is what we were talking about, our conviction not giving us a license for arrogance. Excuse me. So here, right out of the beginning of the chapter, he gives these three exhortations to be subject to rulers and authority, speak evil of no one, and show humility to all men, all humility to all men. As I said, in these eight verses... He gives four exhortations, three facts, and one invitation. The first of the facts that he gives comes to us in verse 3 and has to do with what we were. The second fact is what we are, and the third fact is what we're to become. This first fact here is what we were. Notice verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. First fact, what we were. Now, when Paul uses the word we, notice he's including not only Titus, but himself. So he's saying... I was once this way. Titus, you were once this way. And you might ask the question, when on earth was the Apostle Paul fulfilling this bullet list of things? When was Titus filling this? Answer, must be B.C., before Christ in their lives. And if, or since rather, the Apostle Paul says, you know, I was once like this, Titus, you were once like this, would we not logically say then we also, being included in the body of Christ and in the body of this exhortation and letter to the church, to the believers at Crete, we must also say we were once like this as well. You, this morning, perhaps watching at home, you can react and no one will know you're here. It's like, how dare you, pastor, say that I was, you know, deceitful, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. You don't know me. How can you say that? You're right. I don't know you, but God knows your heart. And if you and I were to examine this clearly and maybe even challenge it, let me give us a few verses that would reinforce that it's true of all prior to Christ. If you're taking note and want to remember this throughout the day or the week, talking about we were once foolish prior to Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, the scriptures teaches us 
that apart from Christ, we, we have nothing, we are nothing, we can do nothing. In Christ, we can do all things. And the invasion of that comes with him dwelling in us who has become unto us wisdom. So BC, no wisdom. In Christ, wisdom. Disobedient. Maybe you grew up as a very obedient child. I have to confess, I was very disobedient as a child to our mom. I might have looked nice while I was doing it, but I was very disobedient. And apart from Christ, obedience. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Prior to Christ, your obedience and my obedience before Christ was leading to death. In Christ, our obedience now leads to righteousness. Deceived? Oh, I know I spent many years under the deception that being good was enough to uh, equate to some sort of acknowledged relationship with God. But Jesus said in John 8, 32, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Prior to Christ, deceived. In Christ, to know the truth. What is the truth? That all have fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Scriptures that many of us are probably familiar with, maybe some of us are not, but the fact of the matter is, is that no matter how good you are, or I am, it's not good enough for God. And until a person is willing to surrender that ideology of just being a good person will get me an eternal place in heaven and come to the reality that I am a wretched sinner in need of a great Savior who died on a cross and shed his blood. For me, there is no place in heaven. Have you made that decision today? Is that your confession? Then the scripture says that's the truth. You're no longer deceived, but the truth has made you free. We get to that portion where Paul says serving lusts and pleasures. It's hard to wrap ourselves around that because some of us who've read our Bibles or studied our Bibles or, you know, researched the Apostle Paul, we know that Paul was this Pharisee. He was this very religious individual, keeping the law, doing everything right according to the law. But he recognized that the law in him did not produce righteousness. Remember his struggle in Romans 7. Oh, that which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul acknowledges that even in his attempt to have this, you know, outwardly righteous life, that he was living 
in lusts and pleasures. And that he was serving those lusts and those pleasures. Hebrews 9.14 says that how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That would be the question of the hour this morning. Are you living to serve the living God? Or are you still still is an assumption, or are you serving lusts and pleasures? Remember that old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody. Who are you serving today? Who did you serve this last week? Who are you going to serve in the week ahead? Who have you decided you will serve in life? Lusts and pleasures? Or the living God. And then he says that he was living in malice or with malice. Uh, there in verse 3. Living in malice and envy. Somehow he came to the realization that even as uh, a Pharisee, there was malice in his heart and envy in his heart toward others. But when he came to Christ, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that our testimony this morning? I find it interesting that he even includes hateful and hating one another. Somehow there was this component of hate in Paul's heart. And he says, and it was once in your heart, Titus, and it was once in every unbeliever or prior to coming to Christ, human being's heart. And we know that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And so we see here a clear, to me, a clear fact that what we once were is only changed when we come to Christ. And so he says in verse 4, but when the kindness of and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. It's a huge switch in his um, dialogue to Titus. So he's talking about what we were, and now he says about, he's going to what we are. He says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, when did that appear? And what would Paul be talking about to Titus who had come to faith and was faithfully uh, working alongside Paul in the gospel message? When did the kindness and the love of God our Savior appear toward men? Answer, when Christ stepped onto the scene, right? John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we did 
behold him full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father, when the kindness and the love of God appeared, when Jesus stepped into the annals of human history, is when the kindness and the love of God appeared. No longer would the, the wrestle of humankind to know and understand their creator and to have a relationship with their creator be contingent upon their understanding of the law of Moses and Judaism, but now the love and the kindness of God had appeared to all men in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 5, as he's going to this uh, second fact, he says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but, and there's that transitional word again, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Can we say amen? So what we were is foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, living with malice, envy, full of hate and hating one another. But what we are is saved. Saved. You just get the picture of that eternal first or third base ump going, save. You would say, or I would say, how so? Love the tying together in verse 5 that says, this is according to his mercy he saved us. Not according to works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Thank you, God, for being so merciful. Thank you, God, that as your word tells us that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, the psalm tells us. How dependent are we that every single sunrise God's mercy is brand new. He's not keeping record of yesterday. He's pouring out his mercy brand new every day. And as we respond to the offer of that salvation, this is what he does through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is how he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Two components there, of course, the washing of regeneration include an element that must cleanse or wash to make something new. And that would, of course, be a reference to the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ is the only thing that can wash you and I clean enough to stand before a holy God. So we have this washing of regeneration this, where I was once dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. But this regeneration, behold, if any man be in Christ, 
all things, the old has passed away, all things become new. So there's this washing of regeneration, the cleansing of his blood over our lives, making us brand new. And then he says, and the renewing uh, in the original language, ongoing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in us uh, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, renewing us in our relationship with the living Christ. Fact two, we are saved. Fact one, we were foolish, disobedient, etc. How so? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit in verse six, whom, notice the word there is a reference to a person, the Holy Spirit, being the third person of the triune Godhead, not an it, not a force, but a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, whom he, God the Father, poured out abundantly, poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember when the Lord said to his disciples, it is needful that I go away, that I might send to you another comforter. And so through Christ's work, his death upon the cross, his burial in the grave, his resurrection on the third day, him being seen for 40 days by over 500 and then ascending to the right hand of the Father, which the Bible tells us right now he is interceding for you and I. He prays for you and I. But he has left the person of the Holy Spirit at work. Jesus said that the Spirit of truth uh, he is with you, he is in you, and he shall be upon you, with you and I, the Spirit of God. Before you came to Christ, the Spirit of God was, was alongside of you, bringing you to a place of conviction about your need for salvation. Once you acknowledge that need, whether you almost lost your life or you just saw your depraved condition, the condition of your soul, and by faith you said, I believe, Jesus, you are the only begotten Son of God, that there is no other way by which man can be saved. Christ, you died on the cross for me. Will you forgive me of my sin? Come and live your life out through me. I surrender my life to you. The Spirit of God took up residence within you. Have you done that today? If you're watching at home, have you done that today? Oh, there's no more glorious way to live than to have the Spirit of God living within you. And you might say, Pastor Art, are you sure there's still hardship and trial and death and dying and tears and and Horrible things going on in this world, you're right. They've been going on since the beginning of human history. There's a way to live above that. Not independent of it, but to soar above it so that the circumstances of real life don't pull us down to despair with no hope. And that begins in a relationship with Christ. 
He's going to talk about that hope. But he poured out the Spirit so that we would come to faith. And as the Spirit takes up residence upon us, what we saw in the book of Acts was those that had received the Holy Spirit gathered in the upper room. There were 120 of them. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, empowering them to be his witness both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Not a a power to live a perfect life, but a power to be his witness in which we are able to recognize our failures, the Christ who is working on us to conform us to his image, and to share that great news and message with others. So then he gets to fact three. What we were was foolish. What we are is saved. What uh, also has happened is we've been justified. Verse seven, being justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there's his invitation. With that third and final fact of, of justified, just as if I had never done anything wrong. What a beautiful place to be. To stand before Almighty God and appear before him just as if I had never done anything wrong, that's justification. And who gives that justification to us is God by his grace and through faith in his Son. And knowing that I can go to him, you can go to him, should encourage the the welcome atmosphere that I don't have to hide. Remember what Adam did in the garden? He was just hiding. It's like, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was, but Adam was like trying to hide. We don't have to hide from God being justified. We don't have to try to run. He invites us to come boldly to his throne. So when you and I were justified by his grace is when we believed. Why we've been justified is because of his mercy. And how we get justified by his grace is through the regeneration, the washing of the regeneration, the renewing of the spirit. We close with this Verse 8, where he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Boy, do you see that? This Titus, don't ever get uh, tired of reaffirming these simple truths. Titus, tell everyone that you talk to on the island of Crete. Tell every um, elder that you appoint as an overseer. Tell everyone that comes across your life path and affirm these things constantly that because of being justified by his grace, because of what we once were but what we are now, that everyone, notice verse 8, to those who have believed in God, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. 
Those are simple four exhortations, three facts, an invitation to be heirs of the hope of eternal life and constantly affirm them of it. It it reminds us that it does us well to be reminded of these things today as well. And when we talk about maintaining good works, simply stated, works don't achieve salvation. They are the byproduct of salvation. Good works aren't what get us to heaven. They are something that are produced because of the promise of heaven. I don't serve God to get God's favor. I serve God because God has given me his favor. And so my exhortation to you this morning is, what good works are you maintaining? And I don't just mean, oh, I guess let's clarify that. What do you do on a regular basis solely to serve God? Not to serve yourself, but to serve God. That would typically involve doing something that, that is sacrificial, requires an energy of you that you wouldn't otherwise have, requires a time from you that you wouldn't otherwise give, may even take a finance from you that you aren't sure you have to offer, but you know in this decision to serve him, maintaining good works, that it's motivated because of how greatly you have received the love of God. It doesn't get you favor. It's because favor's been given. And maybe that's a good little, you know, reminder this week. As we go forward, Lord, help me know what it is that you've called me to do that might serve you this week that is an act of maintaining good works because of how faithful you have been in my life. Good reminder. Will you close with me in a word of prayer? I'll invite the team forward. lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we've taken a look at your word this morning and the exhortations that are there, the facts that are there, the invitation that is there. You know each heart here this morning, every life. You know who we are, what we came through those doors with, what we're planning to get into and go ahead of this week. And how beautiful it becomes for us to, today, once again, offer to you our lives afresh. Asking you in prayer, in song, maybe in a private place in our heart, 
or even publicly to have your way. Lord, we're your people. We long to be your witness. We ask you to fill us again and afresh with your spirit. To take all that we are. To find us ready to be humbled and broken again. To know in a fresh way your power at work within us. To believe that as you're working, our lives become pleasing to you. Lord, all we can do is ask. But we know that when we ask, that when it's according to your will, you have promised that you will do it. And so this morning we ask one more time for you to be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said,